Hey, hey, remarkable people. This is Tracy Robbins, and you are listening to Thy Neighbor Podcast. This podcast is designed to inspire you to expand your community, to connect more often with those who are in your path, and of course, to love thy neighbor as thyself. You will hear from individuals in my day-to-day life who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. Have a listen. Stephanie Rhodes Russell is somebody I deeply admire. When we met, we were both living outside of Washington, D.C., and were introduced as ministers, somebody who we were to watch over each other, basically, within our church congregation. And Stephanie is somebody who was living because of her work was heading to Russia and she would be there for several months. And during that time, rather than making an excuse for being outside the country, which was totally reasonable to me, she would schedule times and calls so that we could connect, even though she was in a completely different country and different time zone. This is something that speaks volumes about who Stephanie Rhodes Russell is. She is a woman who keeps her word. She is a woman who cares for those who are in her circle, and she is a woman who makes things happen. Stephanie, to begin, tell us what is something that most people don't know about you. Well, Tracy, you know this about me, but not many people do, and that is that I am currently pregnant with my first And it's actually my first and my second because we are expecting twins. It is so exciting. (laughs) That's like my husband's dream. Like, please have (laughs) twins. I'm like, wow, I want one. Anyway, but that is amazing. Yeah, we're very excited. How exciting. And you know the gender? We just found out last week and it's two baby boys. Wow. I feel like I haven't heard that combo in a long time. So I'm, I'm excited about that for you. We are too. I was, I was pretty shocked coming from a family of girls, but looking forward to it. That's true. Do you have one brother? I have two brothers, but many more sisters. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, So, and tell us about your journey as a professional musician So I started playing piano when I was five years old. Like many parents do, my mother put me into piano lessons and within a couple years realized that I had a knack for it. And so got me with a more advanced teacher and I continued to progress and um, started in the competition scene and, and was really dedicated to practicing largely in part to my mother. And, um, and had a really positive experience with it. I never thought necessarily that I would do it as a career, but when it came time to go to college, uh, I decided to pursue it as a degree. And so I did my um, undergraduate degree at Utah State University in piano performance. And while I was there, even then I had other interests and I did pre-med for two years. I did finance for a semester. I just, I was never quite sold on it as a career, until I went and saw my first opera when I was in New York City visiting a friend. And there was something about that experience that I just left and I knew I needed to do music 
with my life. I just felt a very strong uh, guide in that direction. And so from that point on, I, you know, decided to really focus on my degree. I'd, I'd always been majoring in piano performance, but doing these other things on the side. And so I focused there. And then the the next summer actually was really life-changing for me because I went to the Aspen Music Festival. And I went only because when I was applying for graduate schools, I saw that they kept asking, what summer music festivals have you attended? And I hadn't heard of this, but it turns out it's a large part of the business and industry. And so I found one and, and I went. And I went as a collaborative pianist, which for those not familiar with you know the profession that are listening, that's essentially everything that you do working with another musician. So you might be playing with a violinist. You might be playing in a piano quintet, you might be playing in the orchestra as a pianist, or that summer, I think I played organ in the orchestra on a piece. Uh, And also you can work as a vocal coach, which is ultimately the path that I ended up pursuing because I started playing for a lot of singers that summer. And the the main voice teacher that I was playing for kept saying, oh, you, you need to be a vocal coach. And and come work down here. And despite my experience in New York with the opera, I just didn't know a pianist could work in opera and it hadn't really crossed my mind. So finally, by the end of the summer, I said, okay, tell me more about this profession. What is it? And I was introduced to the chorus master of Houston Grand Opera, who kind of sat me down and walked through exactly what the job entailed. And as a job, it includes languages because part of your responsibility is coaching the language. And I'd always been fascinated by languages. Uh, It includes collaboration, which I love. Teaching, there's an element of teaching as you're working with singers, which I really appreciate. And uh, there's history involved. There's literature when you're reading through the opera libretto and the background and history, of course, because we're working in classical music. So by the time that the job description was finished, I was like, This is everything that I am good at. (laughs) Of course I should do this job. Um, So I was actually supposed to be moving to New York City to go do my master's degree in piano performance, solo piano. And I decided to cancel and called the school. And I look back and wish I'd kept better record of those days. Like what was my parents' reaction? (laughs) And um, I decided to move to Houston and just freelance for a year. And I ended up uh, playing at the opera company, some playing some for the local universities and had a lot of growth experiences there before I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in collaborative piano, did my master's degree there. And then following that, I returned to Houston as part of the Houston Grand Opera Studio which is essentially the equivalent of a residency for someone who does what I do. And they also have opera singers that participate in the program as well. And so for two years, you work there in a a paid position, but you're simultaneously being trained and coached while getting this hands-on experience. And that was an immensely valuable experience that really launched my career. Um, From there, after I finished that, I took to the road and I spent a year really without a base in in the United States. And I traveled uh, working for companies in Seattle, in New York, in Tulsa, Kansas City, Dallas, 
just a little bit all over the place. Utah, Salt Lake City. I did a project with Utah Opera. Um, and that was a really great start to my professional career because I was able to form a lot of connections, gain a lot of experience early on. And it was a time in my life where I was willing to be traveling like that. Um, and things progressed from there. I'm giving you the whole synopsis of the career. <laughs> um, but uh, that was when I started traveling more internationally. I had um, I had spent a couple summers working for programs in Italy and Israel and some time in France. And then I was actually awarded a Fulbright grant to specialize in Russian pronunciation for singers. And for that, I moved to Moscow and spent a year living there and simultaneously working at the Bolshoi Theater. Uh, I had made connections there while I was in Houston, so I was able to both work and research, which they really aided one another. And, you know, from there, it's, it's just kept going. And I've managed to work at companies across uh, the United States and really the world. It's been a wonderful experience. There is so much I just learned in that that I had no idea about. So I'm just so glad I asked that question to know more about your history. Um, There's a few questions I have that are going to go along to those questions. But um, I guess I'm still curious. And this is, you know, I always feel like you've been really disciplined. And I know that you said that you credit that to your mom. Um, So... So I guess, and, that, and then it requires, as, as a musician, that's required, that you have that discipline. You have to come prepared to do your job. Um, so what are the expectations when you show up for a rehearsal? And how do you feel like you developed that discipline? So preparation really is a huge part of the job, Tracy, because when you show up to the first day of rehearsal, you have to be completely prepared. You have to know the music inside and out. I have to know... Uh, as a conductor, which we'll get to because that's what I'm doing now, you have to know every vocal line, you have to know the line of every orchestral instrument, and you have to know that day one. And you also have to have formed your opinion on how you think the music should go based on the information that the, com- that the composer has given you. And, you know, anyone who's played a musical instrument knows that the hardest part is the learning part, right? Once you've learned the piece, then there is a certain amount of um, pressure that comes with performance and and focus that comes in rehearsal, but but the bulk of the work is done before you ever arrive. And uh, with opera as a pianist, for example, you're looking at 300 pages of music that you need to know as opposed to you know, 12 if you're learning a, a smaller piano piece. Um, so it's, it's a lot of music to get through. And one of the skills that really aids pianists that are in this specific niche in the profession is sight reading. And that's really just the ability to look at a piece of music or a score and play it just without having, without having practice, without having seen it before. And, um, Fortunately, that's something that I developed and excel at. And so I'm able to learn music at a more rapid rate. And that doesn't mean, however, though, that you don't need to practice. 
because there's still the technical element of what we do. And to really master anything, you're, you still have to practice. And I had a great thought from actually my teacher in graduate school that he'd say, you know, well, why do we practice? And I was like, well, so we can play it. And he said, no, you have the skills to play it. It's for consistency. And I've always loved that thought because it's true. Like maybe sight reading, you'll get it right once the first time, but you haven't inculcated it into your being and into your mind and, and into your hands in a way where you know that every time you go to play that, you're going to hit it a hundred percent of the time. Now, as far as the discipline and how you get there and achieve that level of preparation, obviously there's, there's a high level of, um, motivation that comes with just knowing that you've got to show up day one and do the job. Right. And sometimes that might mean cramming more last minute than you care to admit. And I had an interesting conversation with an executive that I worked with this week in which she said, well, we've all probably had at one point in our lives, an opportunity that we weren't fully prepared for and hopefully learn from that. And I think she was hundred percent right. And I definitely can remember the exact project where I had not put in as much preparation as I needed and the feeling throughout it of just coming from behind and hanging on by a thread to get through is not one that I enjoy. So, you know, really at the end of the day, I think discipline has to be broken down though into bite-sized pieces, right? It's the small actions that we do every day. I'm sure you've read it because you read all the things, but I love the book Atomic Habits and really talking about how it's those small daily things that really change the overall direction of our lives, that change the overall product that we're able to produce. So while practicing piano 15 minutes here and there may not seem like a lot, it builds and uh, experience builds as well. And when you are preparing or during that time, when you were preparing for an opera, can you tell me how many hours you'd have to put in before you even showed up? Do you know how much on average? Wait, I, I joke with colleagues sometimes because it's however many hours you have. If you know you have six months to prepare for a gig, you really stretch it out and take your time and enjoy the study process. Um, and then you have concerts where, for example, I just conducted a concert with Madison Opera. Then I was contacted about it three weeks before as a replacement conductor. And so in a scenario like that, you have three weeks. And so you make it happen. And um, luckily with experience, you're familiar with some of the music already. So there's not as steep of a learning curve. But if I'm, if I'm dealing with, a completely new piece that I am not familiar with whatsoever. I'll look at it at least six months out because typically we're contracted pretty far in advance and to get a sense for what I'm up against. If it's something that is going to be really difficult to learn, I know I need to start pretty much then and learn it in smaller chunks so that it has time to settle and marinate. If it's a piece that's Maybe new, but it's by a composer that I've done a lot of other pieces by, a lot of other operas by. Um, then 
I kind of already know the style. I know the sense of the music, how it's going to go. And I also know what it takes for me to learn that. And so generally that will be less time, but it's hard to quantify into hours, especially, um, especially conducting. Like as a pianist, when you're sitting at the piano, it's very easy to say, okay, I am learning this new opera. It's, it's a contemporary opera and very difficult. It'll be challenging to play. I need to be spending eight hours a day at the piano practicing. And then you also do what's called score work to compare the orchestral version to the piano reduction. That's a whole nother topic that we could get into. Um, but there are layers of kind of librarian type of work, translating the text, making sure you understand every word of the Italian or the German and know the pronunciation in addition to the playing of the piano. So it's really balancing those two things. Um, but as a unique because you can't practice in the same way. When you're at a piano, you can press a note and you'll hear a result. If I wave my arms to the mirror, I've got nothing, right? So it makes it very difficult to, A, learn how to be a good conductor, uh, because you don't have an orchestra to just practice with. And so the experiences that you have become really invaluable because you learn how people react to your gesture when they're in front of you. And you have to be able to adapt and change on the fly if something's not working and come up with a new solution. So when I'm preparing as a conductor, I wouldn't say the time is less, but I would say it's much more mental preparation and study. I'll call it score study, um, where you're spending hours making sure that you know the parts really well, having it so organized in your mind that when you're standing on the podium, you don't have to think about how the music goes and you can listen to, oh, there was a wrong note there, or, oh, that balance is slightly off, or, oh, we need to do X, Y, and Z to get the best product. And in the meantime, this person forgot to come in. So I want to make sure I give them a really good cue. And you can't be worried about your own preparation at that point, because preparation is what allows us to fully collaborate in an ensemble setting like that. So what are some of your favorite performances throughout the years? This can include both. This can, yeah, whatever that means. Yeah. So I have to say this concert that I just did with Maths and Opera was a true joy. It was an outdoor concert and there were about 10,000 people in the audience and it was their first live performance as a company since everything began with COVID-19. And for all musicians that have had their careers put on hold, have been wondering how they were going to pay their bills and have really not been able to do their job at all, to be able to be back in that dynamic and to bring music to a crowd that was out there to enjoy it. And, you know, they had glow sticks, so they conducted along on one number. It was it was a really special experience because of, of what we've been through. And I think that's, it's a real reminder of, of the joy that music brings to life. You know, it's interesting because there, there became this terminology during COVID as far as essential or non-essential workers, right? And 
Certainly musicians were not like categorized as essential in any way. And I think that's totally accurate. I'm never going to be one that says music is essential to live. It's not, but it really enhances our lives and brings so much beauty and joy. And, and I do think that's necessary to live a full abundant life. Is it necessary to just get through the day? essential in that way? No, but does it make us more complete, well-rounded human beings? Absolutely. Other most meaningful ones have to do with, with the audience. I actually conducted with the Fort Worth Symphony a Valentine's Day concert at a home um, for, for the elderly. And many of them are in wheelchairs and not able to get out and enjoy a concert. And Honestly, being able to visit with them after the performance, it was, it was such a treat. Once again, seeing the impact of music. I love education performances for that same reason. Whenever we do concerts for younger audiences and, and you experience kind of their joy as they experience it for the first time, uh, those are some of my favorite, most meaningful. And they're not always necessarily what might be considered the, the highest art. But ultimately, I do what I do to connect with people. And so my most rewarding experiences are those where I feel like I've managed to create something special through the music that draws people in and allows me to connect with them, even if I'm not able to speak to them face to face. To me, that's, that's really the goal. And I feel like you do that on all levels of your life. So that's a beautiful way you conduct yourself from within and without, like that's very true of you. Are there any specific lessons you've learned from traveling and living in places for extended periods of time? Like when I was like, when we were, were meeting, you were in Russia at that time. So what are some of the benefits and some of the challenges of that? I think the number one skill that you learn is to adapt and to find home wherever you are and figure out what it takes to create that in a new environment. And the second thing is people really aren't that different no matter where you are in the world. You know, there will be language barriers. There will be differences in culture, um, personalities. But at the end of the day, people are all really quite similar so that you can connect with people, create meaningful relationships in, in that way, I think is also part of adapting. But first you have to realize people aren't that different. And um, I think that's been really valuable for me as I've been able to experience different cultures and appreciate them rather than observing from the outside. I've been able to take an approach where I'm trying to get inside and learn the language and speak to them in their language and, and meet them where they are rather than expecting them to come to me. And I think that's a huge life lesson in and of itself, but with the adapting factor too, it's, it's knowing yourself well enough to know what you need to be happy in a variety of environments and what fuels you and sustains you. And 
then also being willing to go with the unknown and embrace that and know that sometimes it might make you miserable for a while (laughs) because it's definitely not always easy. Like being uncomfortable is not an easy thing and new places and new experiences require discomfort, but it's in discomfort that we really grow. And I know that in my life, I've definitely seen that to be the case. Why did you choose to pivot and get your doctorate as an orchestral conductor? So as I was working in opera, my job as a pianist required that I played for conductors. And I had the opportunity to work with many talented conductors that I really respected. And then along the way, there were also others that I thought, well, I would do that differently. And as a pianist in an opera company, your your job title is actually often assistant conductor because once the orchestra steps in you're in the audience um before there's an audience like you're out in the house giving feedback about the orchestra balance the singers and within the orchestra and you're essentially the ears of the conductor because when you're conducting you have a very different perspective than what the people paying for tickets do and so while you might have a pretty good overall sense it's really valuable to have external ears and you can't do everything yourself. So, you know, being able to turn work over to your music staff that you trust and say, Hey, you know, this entrance is never right on. Can you help me with the singer and a coaching or something like that? Um, You're constantly doing that as an assistant. So the more that I worked as an assistant, the more I realized I'd like to not be the assistant that I would like to be the conductor. And so I had several opportunities that came up um, in my career as a pianist to also have conducting opportunities. And it was those opportunities, particularly one with the Hart Institute for Women Conductors at Dallas Opera, that really convinced me that that was a direction that I wanted to pursue and that, and that I was talented enough to pursue. And, you know, talent's not always the right word, but you have to have a certain amount of inherent skill that lends itself to that, you know, like not everyone can be a good conductor and that's fine because I'm a great pianist, but, but you only find out when you can try and get experience. So I had enough experience that I decided to really commit to that and move forward. And I like preparation and I like being good at what I do. And for me, that meant taking more time for myself to study because I didn't want to just start conducting and assume that I knew how to do it. And it's interesting because I think conducting is a profession that from the outside, people are like, what are they even doing? (laughs) They're just waving their arms. Like, what is, what is the point of a conductor? Um, But it's actually quite a challenge, challenging physicality to develop uh, because essentially you're learning this new language of communication to work with an ensemble. So where your gestures mean everything. So it's a different type of sign language where you with one hand will typically be keeping the beat and the tempo of the music going and, and, and keeping everyone together. And with the other hand, you're trying to shape the music and, and so, and doing a little bit of both along the way. Um, But it's, kind of the quintessential multitasking because there's so much that's happening happening mentally that you also have to incorporate physically. So for me, I knew I needed time to focus on that. And so 
decided to do my doctorate with that in mind, having kind of the time for myself again and taking a bit of a professional break. I still took several contracts while I was in school. They were relatively um, flexible with me in that regard. And I had some great opportunities because of that. But, um, but ultimately, it was important to me to make a clear transition to conducting rather than being a pianist who conducts, if that makes sense. Yes. I've always tried to, I'm like, what is, how does this even work to become an orchestral conductor? What does that really like require? I think it's a misunderstood profession. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> so you started a nonprofit called Women's Ally. And I want to know why you started that, what inspired that, and what it is. So Women's Ally really stemmed from my professional experiences in which often, even when I was on music staff, I was the only woman in the room. And I think even to this day, we don't see many female conductors. It's unfortunately unusual. And that's changing gradually. Um, but the more I started kind of feeling and acknowledging this, and the more I started looking into other arts industries and realizing there was a similar story and a similar thing happening, and actually was able to attend a lecture by Dr. Stacy Smith, who's at the USC Annenberg Institute for Inclusion, and she shared her research about the film industry and representation within the film industry. And and it was a very similar story. And as I was kind of putting these pieces together, it's something that a lot of people were talking about, especially with the rise of the Me Too movement. And I felt like there was a lot of talk and not a lot of action. And I really wanted to do something that I felt like could have a long-term impact on the industry. And for me, the answer to change is typically education. I think for sustainable change that can be long lasting, it requires education. And so I thought, well, what is it that could really help women to put themselves forward so that we do see more of them in representation? Because, you know, there are statistics, but behind statistics, there are stories. And so statistics don't tell the whole story when we just look at numbers and just stop and think more about what's, what's playing into that. And with the arts, it requires such a strong singular focus on developing your specific skill set. Like if you're a painter, you're 100% focused on that. As a pianist, you're 100% focused on that. And of course, you know, in college, there are courses that supplement that and you have your generals, but it still is such a competitive industry that to really succeed, you have to hone your craft at the highest level. And that often happens at the neglect of other really valuable skills, like the skills that help you run a business, especially as an artist where many are freelancers or, you know, run a studio from their home. Or, I mean, through my career, I've worked for so many companies and it's not standard stable profession by any stretch of the imagination. And so having an understanding of, a, business skills, and ranging from everything from contracts, finance, negotiation, personal branding, 
uh, I, I think that encompasses a wide range there. Um, and then also leadership skills and, and not just the skills, but instilling the belief that you have the capability to lead and that you are inherently a leader because, you know, even if I am running my company and I'm the only company member, I guess you could say I'm not leading people, but I'm leading a company. I'm making those decisions. I'm holding that responsibility. When I go out, I'm representing this company. And there's a responsibility and leadership that does come with that. So having the to that rather than, oh, I teach piano out of my home and be slightly apologetic about it. You can say, I run a business out of my home and we have a website and we have this brand and here's our marketing plan. It's, it's a very different approach. So with Women's Ally, what we do is we work with young female artists from all the artistic disciplines. So this year, for example, in our Ally Fellows, we have someone in video game design, someone in interior design, uh, musicians, dancers, artists, visual artists, um, singers. I'm trying to think. It's, it's quite the wide range. And it's really exciting because often in the art those various disciplines are siloed. And so to get all of them together is just fantastic. And we focus with them, not on their talent whatsoever, not on that skill. We just focus on their business and leadership skills. And we kick off with a summer leadership intensive where we cover a lot of the topics that I've mentioned as kind of an introduction And then we continue throughout the year with continuing education seminars, because it obviously is an ongoing process. And a a part of the program that I'm especially proud of is our mentorship program, the Mentor Alliance. And we, when we accept an ally fellow, interview them. And once we have a good sense of who they are, what they would really benefit from, we then seek out a professional that we think is the right fit to mentor them. And it's quite the process, honestly. We're in the middle of it right now, and it can be a little overwhelming because my network is mostly in music. I don't have a network in film. And so you're learning your own business skills as you're going out because I can see what these women need, and I can see the person that could give it to them, but I need to find that person. And then I need to share our mission with them in a way that they want to engage with us and, and help this next generation of women. Our programs expand beyond that, but that's our, our main program currently. We're about three and a half years into existence, so we're still young and growing, but we've grown rapidly so far, which is exciting. And one thing I love hearing from the mentors that I do recruit without fail is, I wish I had had something like this when I was that age. And I think that's a testament to the fact that we're on the right track because these young women really do need these types of skills. And, you know, one thing that's important to know in our mentorship program is that we have both male and female mentors and some of our greatest supporters are men. And I think that's so important that we're working together in this dialogue and conversation.
to, to create change uh, because often they are the ones that are in the position to help with that change and to have have that support in furthering our, our work is really invaluable. We have to work together. I imagine that starting a nonprofit, it's no easy feat and then continuing to grow it. What has been that process and what have you learned? I mean, we could talk for an hour just about that. Um, it is no small feat. And I think the most crucial thing when you're starting a company, be it for profit or nonprofit, is the team that you choose to align yourself with. Uh, because no one can accomplish anything alone. And so you have to, first of all, be able to sell your vision. And as you're bringing team members on board, and once they catch the vision, you need to make sure that you've sold your vision to the right people. I was very fortunate in that I recruited people that I trust immensely to start Women's Ally. And that would be my sisters and a sister-in-law. And five of us worked together to uh, found the organization. And it took a while. I, th- I think they, they caught the vision, but it was only once we started hosting events, actually seeing the, the earlier work that then the vision becomes clearer. And those early stages are really challenging because you're having to work with the vision in mind and believe that it's going to happen and work in a way that makes it happen. And uh, that's that's no small task for anyone. Uh, It requires a lot of, of faith in yourself, in your team, and in your product, whether that's something that you're selling or as a nonprofit, your mission. And, um, I think it also requires a clear plan. And so, you know, structuring a clear business plan, having clear goals in mind and a plan for progress and and growth in place is really imperative. And then as that plan is unfolding, obviously there will be changes and you have to be willing to adapt. I mean, none of us saw COVID-19 coming. And so we, as many others did, moved our programs online. And in a way, it actually enabled us to grow more quickly because we were able to reach a wider audience. And and we hadn't planned on expanding much outside of the state of Utah. We're based in Salt Lake City at such an early stage. That was kind of our our focal point of growth. But Organically, we started having applicants from other universities and from out of state because it was online. And it's the same this year. We're doing three days virtual with our summer leadership intensive and then an in-person final event that will also be streamed for those who are out of state. And, and so that can be exciting, but it also produces new challenges for, for your business. And with a nonprofit, one of the biggest challenges is funding and where you find that financial support. And that's still something that we're working on. We won our first grant last year from the Utah Division of Museum and Arts, which is exciting, but we also have a team of volunteers that run the organization and that isn't sustainable long-term. So as an executive, part of my job at this point is helping shape a financial plan for our future that will allow people to be paid. Otherwise you, you're very limited as to how much you can grow uh, when people are working for free. And fortunately, we have a mission 
that a lot of people have felt passionately about and want to work with us. And we have an incredible team that I'm immensely grateful for. But we need a more sustainable model for the future. And so it's it's an ongoing process as, as you're growing. Yeah. And will you share a story about one of the women who's gone through the program and how it helped her? Absolutely. I think uh, the one that immediately comes to mind is Stani Hansen. And she was an ally fellow our first year, 2019, and a graphic design student at Utah Valley University. And Stani is very talented. And that first year came across as very shy and perhaps a little bit insecure in herself and her work. And after her experience as an ally fellow, she started volunteering with our organization. And she has designed since then our materials for our fall benefit, for our summer leadership intensive. And it's been so incredibly exciting watching her first, her skill set grow. She's had opportunities to expand her portfolio. If you jump on our you know, Instagram page or our website, you can see some of her, her work and it's really exquisite. I recommend her to many people, but also to see her grow as a person. She spoke and presented just a short amount about her experience at the Summer Leadership Intensive last year. And seeing the confidence and growth that she had gained, and she had kind of moved into this, this new identity and role for herself and envisioning herself as a leader now she's a crucial part of the team. She stands up for herself. She pushes back. She, you know, she has strong opinions and I don't always agree with them. So it becomes a different working dialogue. But I love that because she is, all of, all of that was already there in her, but she just kind of unlocked that potential and um, now is working professionally and graduating and um it's really exciting to see those those next steps of growth. That's amazing. And I'm so grateful that you've taken on this endeavor because it's absolutely needful and such a blessing to those who are participating in it. And of course, as the founder of this organization, I feel like you're gaining all that wisdom as well. You're learning so much through that process. So you're extending your skill set as well. How have the neighbors in your life helped you succeed? I've been fortunate because I've had neighbors all across the world and I've needed the support of people all across the world. And honestly, sometimes it's the tiniest gestures of kindness that have made a world of difference. When I moved to Russia, I had already been to Russia once before and stayed for a month, but it was a very different experience moving long-term. And originally, I wasn't sure how long I was going to stay. I knew at least a year, but potentially longer. And so you're dealing with a new set of circumstances, different visa. Uh, how is my mobile phone going to work? I don't have a phone yet, you know, in Russia, like I don't have an unlocked iPhone, just things that it was kind of a steep learning curve. And I remember there was a gentleman getting off the flight that I don't know exactly what he did, but he was an expat and, and worked in Russia and had a lot of experience. And I think he could just kind of tell I was uneasy and just helped me through customs, through go to this line, do this with your phone. You're going to want to 
grab something here, get a SIM card, and just gave me a small handful of tips that made made it so that I made it into the city okay and started getting settled. And having those small kindnesses, having having people that were patient with me while I was learning the language. Sometimes like the facts that we think we have as a neighbor in someone's life, uh, it doesn't take nearly as much as we think it does. You know, it's, it's more about being there in the moments that count. And, and so I think that's one thing, one reason why I prioritized keeping relationships from a distance, because you don't always have to be there. It's just about being there for someone at the right time. And I've had so many people there for me at the right time, whether that was colleagues that helped me navigate the profession, whether that's been mentors of my own who have helped me grow a a company, whether it's been my sisters who have volunteered their time with our company before we could expand beyond and and bring in more hands as volunteers. Um, Whether it's, you know, my husband and his concerts were, I mean, there's just, we are the summation of so many people and so many small interactions too, that, that are still meaningful. And so I think that my life is what it is because of the neighbors in my life, because of the people that I've had supporting me and the people that I have interacted with. And sometimes it's the people that are close, closest to you. And sometimes it's the people that you might only ever meet once, but really help you in a moment. And I have, I have strong examples of both in my life that I'm grateful for. Well, thank you so much for your time, Stephanie. You are so amazing. And I feel like we just barely like touched the surface of what we could glean from you. Thank you for being that person, that neighbor for me at times where I really needed it especially in DC when I needed it a lot. I love you so much. I love you too. Thank you for having me.